1: way fall to your knees gonna make you pay to your
0: is on his way mountain murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast some content may not be suitable for all listeners listener discretion is advised
1: we say fuck a lot
0: Hey y'all, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan.
1: How are you on this snowy day?
0: Man, I'm cold.
1: (laughs) It's plum cold out there.
0: It's it's plum cold. Yes. We've
1: got some frigid temperatures here in western North Carolina and an unexpected late springish snow.
0: Well, and if you've lived in this area for any amount of time, this is not abnormal. It's not. You always get that... um, little taste of spring, and it kind of, you know...
1: 70-degree days, and you're wearing shorts. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, you get a blizzard.
0: A snowstorm, blizzard, a frigid arctic blast. And, of course, we're doing better than large swaths of the country because there's a significant um, snowstorm. A nor'easter. A nor'easter that uh, ripped across the middle part of the um, country earlier a couple days ago and now is up there just dumping it all over them. Oh. Yeah. And then it started snowing.
1: I don't need all that snow.
0: Um, no, You know what? I'm ready for spring. I'm ready for summer. I'm ready for the birds and the, the small animals being born and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm over it for now. And uh, you know what, Winter? See you next year. You, you know need what to I'm saying? peace out. All right. So here we are freezing our nipples off in the Mountain Murder Studios. But the work must go on, right, Heather? Speak for
1: yourself. My third one is perfectly snuggled up and warm under my boobie right now.
0: (laughs) That's the mark of the devil. (laughs)
1: That's what I've heard. Um, In true crime news, Dylan, the family of slain 22-year-old Gabby Petito believes that Brian Laundrie's parents knew about her murder according to a civil lawsuit that was filed this past Thursday.
0: Now they're saying uh, they knew details of what happened to their daughter, basically.
1: Well, the parents stopped hearing from their daughter back in August while she was traveling the country with Brian, and they had feared something had gone horribly wrong because she had kept in touch with them. Then Brian abandoned the cross-country road trip. He left behind Gabby and returned in her van to his parents' home in Florida. I know you've heard the story, just giving you a little recap. This has been huge true crime news over the last, what, eight months? Yes. Nobody in the laundry family notified Gabby's parents that she was missing or that Brian had left Gabby behind.
0: So even when he came back to his parents with her vehicle, not with her, they still didn't like instantly, hey, we have to contact Gabby's parents. Exactly. Because that seems like the natural, The as soon as...
1: Yeah, this was a, a young woman who would be their daughter-in-law soon.
0: Yeah, who had spent uh, lived with them in their house, correct?
1: Significant amounts of time in their household.
0: Yeah, so that was, uh, I thought, uh, in the beginning, I found that very strange. And the fact that uh, um, he left and came all the way back home, th- you know, a thousand miles or whatever it was, and... Uh, really didn't have an explanation for what i knew i knew that he had done something to her there was no doubt in my we mind. all knew right and uh I, it always makes me remember what um i'm sorry just what a what a douchey guy he has to take her van to drive himself back home after he he murdered her
1: in september gabby's body was found in wyoming a medical examiner determined that she had died by homicidal strangulation and brian vanished around the same time there was a nationwide manhunt for Brian Laundry. tips pouring in, investigators searching all over the country
0: yeah, um, that- for
1: this young man. But in the end, he was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in the Florida wilderness in October. Now, after a very lengthy criminal investigation into Gabby's murder, the FBI found Brian was responsible for her death. He had actually written the confession in a notebook before he took his life. So with all of this information, Gabby's parents, Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt, have decided to take legal action against Brian's parents, Christopher and Roberta Laundrie, alleging in the lawsuit that they helped their son conceal Gabby's murder.
0: And I don't think that's a stretch. So now this is likely a civil suit. Of some sort, correct?
1: Yes. <clears throat> now, the lawsuit raises some questions and issues they have with the fact that the Laundry family immediately took a camping trip after Brian returned home from the road trip in September, while Gabby's family was essentially suffering. It also claims that around the time the Petitos reported Gabby missing, Roberta Laundry blocked Nicole Schmidt's phone number and blocked her on Facebook.
0: Yeah, see, these are are very strange behaviors from someone who is not guilty of something.
1: The media had reported that early in the investigation into Gabby's disappearance, Christopher and Roberta Laundrie um, had not been cooperative with law enforcement. Claims that are echoed by Joseph and Nicole, Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt in this lawsuit.
0: Now, so, okay, from your perspective— what do you think about them the Gabby's family bringing this suit against them
1: I think they're perfectly within their rights
0: I think they are and I think honestly his I,
1: parents acted in a very despicable way throughout the entirety of this investigation they essentially helped their son flee and they knew I believe firmly I mean this is I think they knew I mean he was going into this nature reserve with plans to um, carry out a, a dastardly deed of, you know, unaliving himself or whatever. <laughs> oh God.
0: I was going to use that. Thanks. I was going to say unaliving. Um, I agree completely. I think that they, uh, he's basically telling them, Hey, I've done something. I can't, I can't, you know, I'm not, and I don't think it was about like, I'm so I'm despairing so badly that I hurt Gabby. I think it was I can't stand up and take the consequences of my actions. Exactly, I'm not going. To, I can't go. I'm not going to make it in jail.
1: Coward's way out. I'm never situation. So,
0: and I think they. That's why they instantly turned around and take that. Took that family camping trip. That seemed very strangely timed to yes. everyone, and uh, to have some last moments, uh, last memories with their son because they knew he was going to go kill himself, I or think I'm so. sorry, unalive himself.
1: Yeah,
0: I think so. <laughs> oh, we're just using unalive. It's a funny word. Me and Heather found the other day. Um, it's because you can't say suicide.
1: So. Well, you just did.
0: Well, I'm. I'm just saying. But a trigger warning.
1: The word police will be here.
0: Trigger warning.
1: Inmo- oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's a, a vocabulary SWAT team at the door right now. I can hear them. Dylan, hurry, hide under the bed.
0: Oh. oh, you can't fit there. So yeah, I think they definitely. I think they could have been charged criminally. With, multiple like, obstruction counts. of justice. Yes.
1: That's what I think, because they knew where he was.
0: Obstruction and possibly tampering. The fact
1: that they went into the reserve and immediately found his belongings.
0: hmm They Let's knew where he was. Know,
1: they knew exactly where he was.
0: And this is a preserve that had been flooded for days, underwater, yeah. literally. And uh, I think you could get them for obstruction. They were not cooperating with investigators and aiding and abetting after the fact. Or possibly... Um, uh, Tampering with evidence. They
1: should be held accountable for their actions.
0: Because what state was that van in when it got to their house? Did they help clean it out? So, I mean, I'm surprised that the the authorities have not done this, brought these criminal charges. So here we are in the civil side, which I, I don't think a lot of people realize there's some very interesting differences between the civil Side and the criminal side of our courts.
1: Yeah, we've discussed this previously on Mount Murders. Seems like families have a lot more luck prosecuting. I'm going to say prosecuting in a civil case, even though it's not exactly maybe the right language, but winning a civil case based on facts and information over getting a prosecution in a criminal court. Yeah, it's true. Well, they're they're trying to get a hundred thousand dollars for their emotional damage.
0: I don't think it's about the money. A
1: vast amount of money. It's not like they're suing these people for $10 million. (laughs) So I think, you know, naysayers can't point and say, well, this is a financial motive. I mean, $100,000, hey, I'm not going to turn it down. That's a lot of money to me and probably to most people, but not when you're thinking of the value of your life's uh, your your daughter's life
0: well i think it's more along the lines of a principle for the family gabby's family and let's be honest they've been offered way more than a hundred thousand dollars at this point for rights to movies books stories interviews so i don't think it's about the money so and i'm I'm not saying they've taken any of those offers but i'm sure the offers have come in
1: yeah so it's interesting we'll be following that dylan are you excited about today's case?
0: I am really excited. I'm
1: excited about this one.
0: And I think it's very interesting, and I think our listeners will really enjoy it.
1: We're going to give you some history lessons. You're going to learn a lot today, I promise.
0: You're going to learn the answers to questions you didn't know you even had.
1: Exactly. Boom. That's what I like, Dylan. Okay. March 6th of 1989 was a day like any other in Nashville, Tennessee, known as Music City. Uh, You've never been to Nashville, right?
0: I've heard of that place. Have you been there? No. I didn't think so. You're going to take me. Uh,
1: yeah, we have plans to uh, possibly venture off to Nashville here in the next couple of months. It's fun. I grew up, my aunt lived in Dixon, which is a suburb of Nashville. I got to spend my 21st birthday in Nashville, Tennessee. Wow. Great memory from, well, from what I can remember of it. It was fun time. Go down to Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, the Bluebird Cafe, Ernest Tubbs Record Store.
0: Well, I think it's just one of those areas that's just steeped in history, many different kinds of history, and uh, it's a world-renowned. You know, I think you could probably find someone in Japan that, you know, you say Nashville and they know what Nashville means. Country music. Country music, you know, old-timey music and all that. So it's very, very famous and very interesting place.
1: Kevin Hughes, a 23-year-old, worked as chart director at Cashbox magazine. On this day, he went to see a movie with his friend Sharon Pennington, who happened to be a record promoter at one stop, I'm sorry, <laughs> Step One Records. Sometimes I think my brain's got a little...
0: It flips things.
1: flips, yeah. After the movie, Pennington dropped Hughes off at his office building during the early evening hours. While they were out seeing a movie, Pennington relayed a message from a man named Chuck Dixon. Now we gotta talk a little bit about Chuck Dixon Dillon. He is a legend on Music Row. Being a legend, that doesn't always come with positive connotations, right?
0: Well, I was gonna say maybe it's infamy. He's
1: infamous, yeah. But but a bit of a legend. I mean, he he definitely was a man who got some stuff done on Music Row. Dixon was known as the godfather of country music. A shady character with an unsavory reputation, especially relating to how he got things done in the music business. Described as an egomaniac with a loud mouth, Dixon wanted Kevin Hughes to drop stations he was using to compile charts. Now you may be asking, what does that even mean, Heather? I don't know anything about the music business. Well, I'm about to school you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Let us know.
1: We're going to need a pause here for a quick country music history lesson. You like country music, Dylan?
0: Uh, Yeah, I like country music.
1: I like old country music. I
0: like old country music more.
1: I'm a big <clears throat> country music fan when it comes to the old stuff.
0: I listen to all different...
1: Traditional country, I should say that.
0: I listen to all different kinds, just like you. But I do think that, uh, especially the uh, older classic country that during that era was uh, country music was a very important genre of music.
1: Tennessee was, um, or, you know, has been known for its musical roots dating all the way back to the 1700s with world-class fiddlers. In 1824, a hymnal called Western Harmony was published out of Nashville. This song was hugely popular and set the scene for what would become known as Music City. In 1885, an evangelical minister named Sam Jones was holding a tent revival in Nashville when a riverboat captain named Thomas Ryman heard his fiery ceremony. Ceremony. Sermon. (laughs) I'm telling you today, is something else. Ryman teamed up with Jones to create a religious gathering place in the city. Folks helped raise the money to build the Union Gospel Tabernacle in 1892. In May of 1892, the May Music Festival kicked off with Theodore Thomas Orchestra hosting its first concert at what is now known as the Ryman Theater. Oh. So, debut concert at this new venue will become the Ryman.
0: Now I'm I'm right quick I must say I never knew Nashville was known for music all those years ago. I mean that's very interesting. Hundreds of years I told ago. I
1: would learn something today. Wow. A few weeks later 4000 attendees packed the tabernacle to hear Reverend Jones speak. Now he didn't show up thus earning him the nickname No-Show Jones. Have you heard <laughs> that? I've heard people called No-Show Jones before, but I, I didn't really know what it was rooted in, but there you go.
0: So they basically built this place around him showing up and have given his fiery sermon, a big part of it, and he just doesn't show up when the, the first time it's packed full of people.
1: Yeah, 4,000 attendees.
0: Yeah, that's a rather large entertainment gathering back, back in the day especially.
1: The space was used for Vanderbilt University's commencements and theater productions, such as Old District School," which is a old mountain play.
0: Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with that.
1: Well, I think Skule was maybe uh, translated into school later on, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess kind of a famous... Um, old Southern kind of mountain, old timey play. In 1901, the space needed to expand its stage for an elaborate opera production of Carmen. So it's kind of at that point they begin adding on. Hey, we got to build a stage. We're bringing in operas. It's not just some little old, you know, little tiny concert. It's becoming a big thing.
0: Yeah. So they're like, we have this venue, and we're going to we're going to make good use of it, and we're going to bring different or tops of things in, and which I think is a really great idea.
1: By 1925, WSM, a 50,000 Clearwater station, radio station, was created in Nashville, Tennessee, which broadcast a full-time country music playlist. A show called WSM Barn Dance debuted with a performance by Uncle Jimmy Thompson, and that began broadcasting in 1925. The barn dance was referred to eventually as the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. Around 1927. And this is a name that would stick. Everybody knows about the Grand Ole Opry, right? Unless you're living under a rock.
0: <laughs> well, no. I mean, that's one of those things that it doesn't matter if you're in the country music or not. You've likely heard of the Grand it's like Ole like Opry. like pop culture yeah.
1: iconography, right? Well, by the 1930s, the show, known as the Opry, expanded to a four-hour block on the radio and featured professional performers. Roy Acuff and Floyd Rose founded a music publishing company on 16th Avenue, which was the first successful attempt to legitimize country music in the city, at least by folks not associated with the Ryman. Music studios uh, began to kind of follow More were created along with the one owned by the brothers Harold and Owen Bradley. They were the first to really open a studio on what is now known as Music Row. Soon the area surrounding 16th Avenue was nicknamed Music Row as all the buildings and small cottages along this stretch of the street We're we're somehow associated with the music industry. So you've got publishing companies, recording studios, record labels. It's like the place to be.
0: Yeah, so everyone in the area has their fingers in the music industry.
1: Like what Broadway, you know, what you would think of like 44th and Broadway or whatever being associated with like the New York theater scene. Or Hollywood Boulevard.
0: Associated with drug addicts
1: <laughs> in Los <and> Angeles, <laughs> associated with the, you know the Hollywood stars, right? Right? I mean, so it's it's that kind of thing. By 1943, the Opry moved to what is now the Ryman Theater. So then they built a nice big space specifically for the Opry.
0: So this has really taken off. Really it's taken turning off. into a thing.
1: Yeah, you know, and it was really with the creation of radio broadcasting that the country music industry began booming.
0: Yeah, and could you imagine being alive in this time? Because now we have things are advancing at an incredible rate, and it's like, oh, cool! Now I got a hologram. I mean, it's, but you've had all this other entertainment. Like when radio took off, yeah, I mean, that just that was a game changer.
1: Well, up until this point, folks had very limited availability for entertainment. I mean, you might be living in a holler up in Kentucky, like Loretta Lynn, right? Right. You have no real access to the outside world, completely isolated, unless maybe, you know, your, your daddy or your mama play an instrument and you've, you have some family come over and maybe do a little picking and grin on the porch. But this was something that you had a radio, you turned it on and it was a family event. Everybody sat around the radio and, and because it was one of the only forms of entertainment that people had,
0: yeah, and it gave it wasn't just music. It gave rise to radio programs, uh, you know, inter- the that, shadow notes that, that are just purely for entertainment, scripted entertainment. The Lone entertainment.
1: Ranger. I mean, you had all those <clears throat> scripted radio dramas. Yeah.
0: and so now in the modern version um, is podcast. You know, now you're getting scripted podcasts and the big business, which is funny. We talk about how funny it is the big business entertainment people getting into podcasts because there's like. Oh, I'm just gonna sit around and talk with all my star friends, which is really not you know, podcasts is kinda it's
1: not in the spirit of what no. podcasting I guess began as, but yeah. But yeah, everything r- gets commercialized. We know that.
0: Radio was huge. Radio it was, was a big huge. deal.
1: Huge. I mean, it is how people got entertainment and like News. learned about the world around them. By nineteen fifty, RCA Records signed Elvis Presley. At the end of the decade, about 500 recording sessions were being held each year in Nashville. A decade later, there was about 5,000 recording sessions a year. Wow. Yeah. So as you can see, I mean, it's just boom, boom, boom. It was in 1950 that Nashville was dubbed the official music capital of the world. Billboard, which a lot of folks are familiar with, Began publishing in 1894, founded by James Hennigan and William Donaldson as a trade publication for bill posters. In the early part of the 20th century, Billboard covered the entertainment industry, providing actual billboards. That's where they got their name. And that's funny. And flyers for circuses, vaudeville, fairs, burlesque shows, and created a mail service for entertainers as a way to be able to communicate with their families while they were on tour on the road.
0: So, wow, that's pretty amazing. It's kind of the origins of Billboard, which is you know, so big nowadays.
1: I told you you are going to learn a lot in this episode. As radio and phonographs became more popular and eventually jukeboxes, Billboard began focusing more on the music industry. In the 1920s, Billboard created a radio broadcasting station, during the Great Depression, the jukebox industry took off. People could pay a few pennies to hear their favorite songs. They pub- uh, Billboard published their first hit parade in 1936 and introduced a record-buying guide by 1939. In 1940, it introduced its chart line, which tracked best-selling records. And I think that's what most of us know Billboard. Like, that's how we know Billboard today Right. Is, you know, it's a chart. Yeah. The top 40 countdown.
0: And it's a big deal to be on it.
1: Exactly. So by the 1940s, the publication became more music-centric, serving as an industry specialty publication. To compile charts, Billboard looked at record sales and radio play. By 1942, Billboard wasn't the only publication in the game. Cashbox magazine was created. If you want to compare Billboard to Cashbox, it's kind of like buying from a big box store like Walmart versus a small business like Etsy. In the difference between Billboard and Cashbox. Okay. So, Billboard's like the Walmart, like the big box store, and Cashbox was like the little independent engine that could, right? It was like if you're buying something from Etsy. Cashbox was the underdog, but it was more attuned with what people were actually listening to on the streets. Cashbox was a gem for small independent record labels and unknown artists. And while Billboard was crunching the financials, Cashbox worked with indie stations, which had much more freedom to play music than the larger stations. And this is still true today. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, so larger stations typically have to follow a pretty strict format with only a few songs in the rotation. That's why when you're listening to the radio for longer than 20 minutes, you're probably going to hear like the same eight songs.
0: I don't, I don't, I can't, and I know it was in some corporate boardroom, some dumbass had this great idea and it took off. I just can't understand who thinks that is the best thing to do.
1: Dude, when I worked in radio, I had a huge problem with this. We went from being like an independent station where, where you could literally I, play I what had freedom you to play pretty much whatever I wanted um, to, you know, picking up a satellite feed where they chose the music format and I was just a DJ. All I did was like the right. on-air personality. I didn't have any hand in picking songs and it's the same stuff, but I guess it's designed for like a quick commute. They estimate people are going to be in their car maybe 10 to 20 minutes listening to the radio on the way to work, on the way home. So they're trying to play these super popular songs so that you're hearing those while you're in the car for this short amount of time.
0: Oh, so no matter for whatever short amount of time you, you you hear their station, you're hearing the most popular, and it's supposed to make them feel you feel like, wow, they're really on top of it. But all it does is ruin music. Because it, This is
1: true. This is a big complaint with why people don't really listen to radio now that you can do streaming apps and pick your own playlists and pick your own music. Because I think these suits, I don't know what it is, but it's like they seem to think that if you like hip-hop, that's all you listen to. Right. Right? And I think people have broader tastes, and they can kind of appreciate maybe a looser format.
0: There used to be stations, and those those were always my favorite when I would stumble across a station that played a little bit of everything.
1: Yeah, a variety.
0: And you never knew what was coming next. And you didn't love every song, but sometimes it was like, you know, they played a great song you loved, and then boom, another one from a completely different genre. And I think that is the best way to go because I used to work outside, and we listen to the radio all the time, and it is maddening with this corporate shitty loop thing they do.
1: Corporations killed the Radio Star.
0: Fucking iHeart, bro. Ugh.
1: Clear Channel, iHeart, yeah. Damn. Smaller stations have the ability to branch out, play more artists and a variety of genres, uh, you know, genres at times. So uh, one of these smaller stations, you might hear some rock music and pop music, you might hear a crossover hit that's right. got a little country twin. you know, tinge to it, a little twang. But with these big stations, we all know you're never going to hear that shit.
0: No, and you're stifling creativity in an industry that is, because even if you have a good DJ who has a great taste in music, the people are going to react to that in a good way. They're going to tune into that person's show. But this just stifles, it homogenizes everything and stifles creativity. And I don't understand why people think that that's a good thing to do in something like a music setting.
1: Cashbox's chart research teams relied on these smaller stations to give air reports, what callers wanted to hear, and what was being played on these stations. Both were influential in the country music industry. Kevin Wayne Hughes, back to our story, was born October 29th of 1965 in Carme, Illinois. His mother Barbara described Kevin as discovering a love for country music upon entering grade school. He bought Billboard magazines and dreamed of one day moving to Nashville to make it big in the business side of the country music industry, which is unusual, Dylan. You know, mostly when you hear about people wanting to move to Nashville to make it, they want to be a star. But he's like, no, I want to be on the back end.
0: Well, and there's a lot of money to be made there and a lot of, um, you know.
1: what's an important job.
0: Very important because without the back end, uh, the the other, you know, no one would make it.
1: Exactly. Someone
0: has to handle the T's and crossing the T's and dotting the I's. Not
1: everyone can be shiny. And that's the problem with today's society. Everybody wants to be the shiny one.
0: Yeah. Nobody and Everybody wants
1: to be on the back end.
0: There's nothing wrong with following the paperwork to help the shiny one achieve something.
1: He even began making his own charts and rankings when he was a kid, <laughs> which I think is kind of cute. In 1986, he left college to become director of Cashbox Magazine's Top 100 Country and Western chart. Kevin was described as kind, religious, trustworthy, and loyal by those who knew him. Kevin loved his job and living in Nashville. He would often put in unpaid overtime hours. Like instead of leaving at 5 p.m. like everybody else, Kevin would be in his office until like 10 p.m. each night. Pouring over the information, compiling his charts, you know, making sure every detail was there.
0: Now I can imagine Cashbox has a much better idea of what's truly popular and people are listening to just because of the way they gathered their information and their statistics through these on-air reports or literally what the DJs say people are calling in and requesting at the moment.
1: You know, Dylan, in theory, you would be right. let's discuss.
0: (laughs) We'll discuss this further.
1: Hughes, remember he'd been to a movie with his friend, Sharon. She dropped him off back at the office, and now he's made other plans. Dylan, he has dinner plans with a new friend, a recording artist and record promoter named Sammy Sadler. Sadler didn't know it at the time, but his friend Kevin Hughes had been experiencing some issues at Cashbox. Hughes was being pressured to adjust the charts he oversaw, often being offered cash gifts, like expensive sporting tickets.
0: Oh, by the people, and
1: even physical threats.
0: Oh, so by the manager managers of acts, businesses, I mean bands. Rather, is that who would threaten him, wanting like. Fake statistics to support Well, them. mostly
1: it's Chuck Dixon, and we're gonna get into that right now, Dylan. Oh my Another gosh. history lesson for you. Are you ready? Oh, Chucky D. Fill your big brain up with some knowledge. In the early days of the music industry, a practice known as payola, which was paying DJs and program directors to play your records, was not illegal, but it was fairly common.
0: I've heard of this before, pay to play.
1: Yeah. Yep. The line was continuously blurred for a number of years. In 1959, a payola scandal rocked the world of rock and roll, taking down a beloved radio DJ named Alan Freed and almost destroying Dick Clark's career. Wow. Now, obviously, payola is problematic. When money changes hands for certain artists to be featured, Those artists get more attention. And we all know exposure is key to making it in the music business. In an ideal world, the public's response to music should drive the bulk of the attention.
0: It should be natural and it should be off of your talent and and what you've created, period. And and
1: what people want to hear. Right. With Payola, a record label can easily decide which artists will succeed and which will fail. So if a record label has a lot of money to pour into Payola, it can be a way to phase out any competition and see that only their artists get radio play. Though it's illegal now, Payola still happens. One of the latest cases was back in 2005 and involved Sony Music when it was noted that they paid DJs to play Sony artists such as Jessica Simpson. Jessica Simpson. So you can kind of look into that if you want to know a little bit more.
0: Well, and, and I think that that proves the point right there. I mean, not nothing against Jessica Simpson. I, I used to watch Jessica and Nick, right? Is that the one?
1: Yeah. <laughs> the chicken of the sea. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, uh, but, I mean, come on. And there may be some Jessica Simpson fans out there who loved her music. It was just some, you know, generic pop, in my opinion. But, uh, it wasn't incredible, right?
1: She's been really successful as a businesswoman running her own fashion right. label. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, she's smart, she was pretty obviously. She's pretty
1: attractive. I mean, yeah. she had all the qualities to make a pop princess, you know, and she wasn't untalented. No. But that's never really been, I mean, you know, I'll listen to like Britney or Jessica or Christina Aguilera back in the day when it was like on the radio or something. But I was not, like, a rabid pop fan, so. Well,
0: and that shows you the effectiveness of this uh, very uh, scheme of payola for a a, a huge company like Sony to still participate in, in the modern day.
1: Exactly. And I will note, my daughter wanted some of the Jessica Simpson edible body lotion for Christmas. Yeah. So I took to eBay to try to locate this shit. I was like, they still make it? And she's like, no, you'd have to find, you know, some of the original. vintage, Right um oh my god that should sell them for like 180 dollars well
0: that's just the law of uh supply and demand i
1: guess but i'm like really who it, wants this it, it's out of circulation Besides, like just having it as a novelty
0: well i mean yeah there you go
1: <laughs> because i think she just wanted it for the novelty you know these kids they're like obsessed with y2k fashion now i don't get it anyway in 1987 chuck dixon hired kevin hughes to work at cashbox magazine Dixon was the division manager at the time, and eventually Dixon would no longer work for Cashbox, but still had his hand in the pie. Hughes was working to legitimize the Cashbox charts for independent artists and improving the magazine's image. While working at the magazine, Hughes had uncovered Dixon's own payola scam.
0: Damn it, man.
1: Chuck Dixon would take money from indie artists somewhere around $1,200 to $2,000 from them initially to get their name on cash box charts. So some of these, you know, green behind the ears, newbie artists had this idea that if they could come up with, you know, ten dollars or $20,000, they would be able to make it.
0: So it's not even, uh, they're taking the What if out of the equation? If I can pay this much money and uh, they can pay people to play my records, and you're just almost automatically guaranteed to make
1: it. Yeah, Chuck Dixon's going to make me a star. Then those artists who had moved to Nashville with starry eyes would pay Dixon until their money ran out, and that's when he would just drop them like a hot tater.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, so what? they have no recourse because what they've been engaging in is a... unethical at the very least and um, possibly illegal so yeah there's no what can you do you can't there's no nobody to go complain to I
1: guess you just bend over and take it
0: yeah with you know, no grease that's right unlubricated. Now, all
1: the while the green musicians had no idea what was really happening thinking every day they were closer to their big break forking over all the money they had for this scam a starter or like smaller radio station having that larger playlist made it easier for a promoter to obtain play for certain songs. So Dixon was angry with Hughes because he had dropped some of those smaller stations, but was also refusing to continue this pay for play scam. So not only has Hughes moved to drop those stations, but Hughes is also refusing to take money and be bribed.
0: So he's basically saying, look, I compile this chart, it's important, and I want it to be pure, as it can be, and I want it to be natural and organic.
1: So with Hughes in this position, Dixon could no longer manipulate the songs being played.
0: So this is ruining uh, a a huge money-making scam for Dixon.
1: Right, and like Big Big Worm said, you play with my money, you play with my emotions, Dylan. That's true. So that's probably how Chuck Hughes felt, or Chuck Hughes, Chuck Dixon. (laughs) That's probably how he felt about Kevin Hughes. Now, on the afternoon of March 9th, Sammy Sadler, who was a recording artist and promoter at Evergreen Records, met Kevin Hughes for dinner. The pair were just beginning a friendship. Like they had just met. They're both kind of, you know, these young guys, new to Nashville. They meet. They really hit it off. Come from these small towns, big fans of country music. You know, so it's like they're really trying to to build a friendship here. So they go on their little mandate. And Sadler had actually been in Nashville for a couple of years, but he didn't know about Kevin Hughes' problems relating to Chuck Dixon, as I mentioned before. Now, after dinner, the men went to Sammy Sadler's office at Evergreen Records in order for Kevin Hughes to make a phone call to his parents. So while Kevin is on the phone at Evergreen Records, Sammy thinks he hears someone at the door, but it's locked. He goes out, you know, toward the front and saw a man walking away from the building. Afterwards, around 8.30 p.m., the pair departs, and they're out right on 16th Avenue where Kevin Hughes has parked his car. As Sammy Sadler is entering the passenger side of the vehicle, a man wearing gloves and a mask appeared at his door with a gun, just seemingly out of nowhere.
0: Oh, my God.
1: His first reaction was to throw up his arms to protect his head. But he shot. The assailant was wearing all black clothing, a ski mask, In the panic and confusion, Sadler somehow made his way to a nearby apartment building. But Kevin Hughes, seeing the gunman, tried to flee running down the street. But the gunman fired several times, hitting him. Sammy was shot in the arm, which severed a major artery. Kevin, however, was shot in the back of his head with two bullets entering into his head. And he was shot also in the back. Kevin Hughes was dead by the time law enforcement arrived at the scene. Damn. Bystanders like Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings stood behind yellow police tape while trying to figure out what happened.
0: That's pretty amazing. Yeah.
1: So there were like some big name country music artists that happened to be in the area at the time and maybe didn't witness the shooting, but they're there witnessing the aftermath. Right? I mean, that in itself is like, whoa, right? (laughs) Now, immediately law enforcement theorized the intended crime was murder, not a lesser crime like robbery.
0: No, it seems like it was just an outright assassination, right? I mean, the intent was to make sure he died.
1: From the beginning, police had a difficult time with the investigation. There were no suspects, no motive, and no solid witnesses. Two students from Belmont University witnessed the murder. Robert Lyons III and Allison Kid Cimento were driving down 16th Avenue when the driver, Kevin, I'm, I'm sorry, the driver, Robert, said he saw Kevin Hughes, like, roll away from this car and start running. A man came from the other side of this car and begins pursuing Hughes, who's now running. And so this guy's just driving down the street watching this happen, right? He watches the gunman fire two to three times. He sees Kevin Hughes fall to the ground. The assailant then fires three more shots. Uh, Robert Lyons noted that the gunman was wearing all black and held a blue steel revolver in his hand. He told law enforcement that the shooter was somewhere between like 5'10 and 5'6 with a stocky build. The eye holes in the mask were cut kind of wide enough that he could see the perpetrator was a Caucasian. And that he seemed to run with a strange side-to-side gait. <laughs> that it was a very strange way of running.
0: So it's like you never see anyone run like this. Right. Very, very weird.
1: A man named Philip Barnett was living in an apartment on 16th Avenue when he heard the shots fired. So he looks out the window, and that's when he saw these two men running in a zigzag pattern until they were out of sight. Donnie Lowry, another apartment resident, witnessed a similar thing along with his visitor, Kathy Hunter. So you've got multiple people, gunshots, and then they see a masked man chasing another man down the street.
0: That's quite the scene.
1: Yeah. Officers gathered evidence at the scene, including a spent projectile near the victim's head and a ball cap near Hughes's right foot. A hair is actually found in the ball cap, Dylan. Noise. It is submitted to the FBI for analysis. A hair and fiber expert would later say the black hair had characteristics of cat hair.
0: Okay. You know, there's still a discussion, ongoing discussion, about hair uh, comparison. And sometimes, I think fiber analysis is even, uh, I think, better typically than hair analysis because of, you can go down all the way down to chemical composition, uh, shapes of the fibers and all that on the microscopic level. Some of it is very telling. But a lot of people still think that hair analysis in comparison is junk science. And it's very speculative and, and not that great of a let's say if it's a, a another part of a, a bunch of evidence and you have one of them happen to be a hair cool it could support you well, know it just a,
1: makes it tough if that's your only like yes. forensic evidence yes
0: because you can it's not like a fingerprint you can't take my hair and Heather's hair and say oh look that definitely belongs you could take two people with brown hair and there's going to be you know I don't know it's it's not it's not 100 percent.
1: During autopsy, two more projectiles were removed from Kevin Hughes' body and also sent for testing. Through their investigation, law enforcement learned of this pay-for-play scheme. Some whispers pointed them in the direction of Chuck Dixon and another record promoter named Richard D'Antonio.
0: Wow, so he's been attacked and killed, and very quickly, the cops are finding out about people who may have had some problem with him, right?
1: People in the industry speculated it was a professional hit because it had been so clean with very little evidence left behind. A few suggested that Kevin was involved in the scheme as he was in a position to accept money from a promoter or an artist to move their record up the charts. However, law enforcement found no evidence to support this theory. I mean, it was actually completely you know, the opposite scenario that he was refusing to take this money.
0: Yeah, not only yeah, not only is he not taking money, he's being vocal about the fact that he's not going to be bribed and he's going to do things above board.
1: And law enforcement also didn't believe Kevin's job was important enough to warrant a murder for hire. So it baffled police that if Kevin was the target, then why was Sammy Sadler shot as well? After the shooting, Sadler had to undergo multiple surgeries to repair the damage to his right arm. At the time, Sadler was just getting ready to release his debut album on Evergreen Records. He had released an album previously, but like with a different record company. The suspicion that Sadler may have been involved in this murder of Kevin Hughes basically cut his music career short
0: but he was shot too. Yes. Is that just to make it look good?
1: But people were like whispering. I mean, you know how people are, Dylan.
0: That's true.
1: He probably had something to do with it. I mean, just bullshit, right?
0: It's like uh it's like not being in the car with Tupac. Tupac's killed, Shugnot's injured, but not killed. Or was he even shot? I don't even know if I Suge think took he a bullet. Might have been shot. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that people opened up on with the, like automatic rifles basically and you're not killed when you're in a vehicle with someone. It's almost like they were pointing just at the one person. It's weird, right?
1: The murder on Music Row, though salacious, went unsolved. In February of 1993, one of the detectives on the case learned that a man named Steve Daniel, an aspiring songwriter, had sold Richard D'Antonio a gun. In 1993, Steve Daniel and D'Antonio had written several songs together, D'Antonio promised Steve Daniel they would, you know, get something going, like for him selling these songs. Like lots of people who want to be music stars, Daniel's career was stalled, and in order to make ends meet, he began selling drugs. He was not, by most standards, what one might consider, like, a drug dealer, and even law enforcement was like, you know, like... He's no pro, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, he's a guy who's just trying to make some money and then gets involved in something that's way over his head. When police show up at his home with a warrant, and this was actually the Georgia police because he's living in Georgia at this time. Um, It's the GBI.
0: Oh, I I was going to say. I should
1: clarify. GBI agents show up at his home with a warrant. They find five 55-gallon drums filled with 273 pounds of marijuana.
0: That's a lot of reefers.
1: So during this drug investigation, the GBI, um, these agents soon learned that Daniel had information about a murder, specifically the murder of Kevin Hughes. It was on the same day that Kevin Hughes was murdered that Daniels had sold D'Antonio a 38 caliber revolver. Daniels sold it to him for $150, and he didn't have any bullets at the time, so he had to go out and buy some you know, bullets for this gun and ended up getting the cheapest thing he could find. So when D'Antonio arrives at Daniels' house, uh, D'Antonio wants to go out and shoot this gun in the backyard. So they go out, and they pop off a few rounds of this gun. Now, this information sounded convincing enough for for GBI agents to contact the Nashville Police Department. Oh, wow. It's pretty interesting how they bust this case open. D'Antonio had been on a short list of suspects back in 1989 and was even interviewed by detectives. Again, folks were whispering, D'Antonio, Chuck Dixon, this is who you should be looking at. But there was no evidence to tie him to this crime scene. At the time, back in 89. With a new lead in the murder, detectives began looking into D'Antonio. Nashville police convinced Steve Daniel to place a recorded phone call to D'Antonio. Without getting the kind of confession they had hoped for, detectives were not able to make an arrest yet. They had only circumstantial evidence, but police could put a 38 revolver in D'Antonio's hand, though they could not yet prove he had been the Triggerman. Again, this case went cold.
0: Well, yeah, it doesn't sound like they have any other leads. And what they do have is very circumstantial.
1: In 2002, the Nashville Cold Case Squad decided to take another look at Kevin Hughes's murder. Detectives had a new idea, and they wanted to run it by the GBI agent who would help bring Daniel's story to them back in 1993. So detectives thought, even though it was a long shot, if they could find the projectiles from those few test shots in Daniel's backyard, they might be able to connect those projectiles with the ones found at the crime scene, and then they would be able to move on D'Antonio.
0: I would call that a very long shot.
1: Right? Now everyone agreed it's worth a try. Crime scene technicians were sent out to the home in Georgia where Steve Daniels was living back in 1989. They used a metal detector which uncovered bullets up and down an embankment. Thirteen slugs were found in all. The bullets were sent to the lab to be compared with the slugs pulled from Kevin Hughes's body. Now get this, Dylan, one out of 13 matched. Really? Just one out of the 13. And the marks on the single bullet was determined to have been fired from the same gun that killed Kevin Hughes.
0: Wow. So their long shots possibly paying off, right?
1: After 13 years, the detectives were finally able to place the murder weapon in Dan Antonio's hands, yet detectives still needed to find a motive for this murder.
0: Yeah, it seems like uh that was a really somebody was really thinking outside of the box on that and just had that one little snippet of uh the person recalling him, Hey, let's go shoot this gun I got. Let's go try it out. Now when you first said that I was worried if they shoot outside all the time, multiple weapons or whatever, it'd be really hard to pick find that one shell out of all these shells. But it sounds like that's not somewhere they commonly shoot commonly shoot. And that which uh Increase the odds of finding these shells all the years later.
1: Now, don't hold me to this exactly, Dylan, but to go along with what you're saying, um, just in the research and listening to an interview with Steve Daniel, it definitely seems like he was not a gun guy. Right. And so this request for get me a gun, get me bullets. I mean, he was just kind of like, I can do it. But he was not someone who was constantly out shooting a gun. Right. 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 So that definitely helped these detectives. And, you know, we often talk about those certain detectives that refuse to give up. And they will work on a cold case and revisit it a hundred different times. Keep coming back to it because they are damned and determined we are going to solve this one day.
0: Well, and I think that um, just getting resolution for any victims and, and making people be held accountable for what they did is their driving force on that. And and some detectives put a lot of energy, and sometimes their own money and resources into a case like this, they can never let it go. They want to finish see it through.
1: Well, by this time, D'Antonio had moved from Nashville to Las Vegas, where he had worked in a casino. But when police found him, D'Antonio was unemployed and living a quiet life. D'Antonio was arrested for these crimes. Richard D'Antonio was then extradited back to Nashville. The district attorney, Tom Thurman, wanted to prove in court how the shady promoters were working. So if a scam was uncovered, it could be the motive they were looking for in Kevin Hughes' murder. Since the pay-for-play scam was mostly targeted at fresh, independent artists the DA's office decided to forge ahead with an undercover operation. So this is very interesting to me. They had a female agent pose as a singer, and she was admittedly not a talented singer.
0: By design. Uh, I've heard this
1: lady, and let me just say, I mean, she maybe could be like the queen of the karaoke.
0: Right. So she can sing a a little bit. At a good
1: old roadhouse somewhere. Yeah. After you've had about six but yeah she's not she's not jessica simpson dylan
0: so here we have this mediocre singer <laughs> yeah right exactly and then what happens next
1: well after paying some money the woman found herself moving up the cash box charts wow during d'antonio's trial the prosecution was able to shed light in a public courtroom about the scam rival promoters were called to the stand to testify for the prosecution. And by the time D'Antonio was being tried, uh, Chuck Dixon... Chucky D. Not Tuck, Chuck. Chuck Dixon had already passed away back in 2001. So Chuck Dixon will never...
0: Be held accountable, be
1: punished for what he was involved in here. Right now, an expert in firearms testified that the two projectiles removed from Kevin Hughes's body and the third projectile found at the crime scene were all fired from the same gun—a 38 caliber um, .357 wad cutter lead projectile.
0: That's a common uh, target. Was a cheap bullet.
1: Yeah, right. Are, have we talked about a wad cutter? Aren't they pretty brutal if They're... they hit the skin? Like if you're shot with one I'm pretty
0: sure they're rather soft okay. right which kind of make them flatten out and spread out I do know that um, in the when I was a child and um, we would often target shoot people would use what they call these wad cutters and I think the biggest reason for that was the cost
1: well and the thing with these particular 357 wad cutters Dylan is that they were mostly reloads okay so they weren't even like
0: factory bullets
1: yeah exactly.
0: I, I could be wrong on that too. I mean, there might be a gun person's like, "Oh, all right, dumbass, don't know what." But that's in, in my experience.
1: No, that, I think that's what it is. I mean, my dad, <laughs> my dad's a gun person, and um, like he's he probably still does. But at his old house, he had a, a reloading machine in his bedroom. Yeah, yeah. That's how you. <laughs> that's
0: how you turn that ladies on. Yeah,
1: you want to come back here and see my reloader? Okay. So then this expert testified that the one found in Flintstone, Georgia at Steve Daniels' property matched the projectiles from the Kevin Hughes crime scene. Now, Steve Daniels testified that he had known D'Antonio since 1985 or 1986, and that on this particular day, which was March 9th, 1989, D'Antonio arrived at Daniels' house unannounced around midday, asking to buy a pistol. And Daniels had to scramble a bit to, you know, get get a gun, get him some bullets... But Daniels ended up selling him a 38 pistol and provided those reloaded 38 bullets along with the gun. Now the or the 357 bullets. Now the two um, then kind of went out back. They shot the shit, shot the gun. Dantonio departed Daniel's house somewhere around 6 15 or 7 p.m. after having spent some hours there. Uh, let's see. Dantonio had then spoken to Daniels later, stating that If my wife Caroline calls you to ask where I've been, you tell him I was in Georgia with you till 11 p.m.
0: Uh, no, I'm not lying for you.
1: Well, according to Daniels, the drive from his house to Nashville was around two hours and 15 minutes. Daniels also corroborated eyewitness accounts that D'Antonio had a strange gait that was almost like an animal, not a person. He's like, I have seen D'Antonio run... And it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. (laughs) Like, it's a memorable run. Oh, wow. He has.
0: Wow. And that was a very uh, uh, key detail the description of the killer.
1: Another man named Gene Kennedy, who had been a promoter and record producer for 28 years, testified under immunity, I might mention, that he'd promoted to Cashbox magazine until 1988. At that time, Kennedy was approached by Chuck Dixon, who offered him a deal for $1,500 and the purchase of an ad to promote at the magazine. Now, Kennedy refused to pay Dixon, and for three years, the records that Kennedy promoted, they did not appear on cash box charts. Chuck Dixon had essentially blackballed him and all of the artists he represented.
0: Damn it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So Kennedy believed that the charts in 1989 were still controlled by Chuck Dixon and Richard D'Antonio. The cash box charts lacked legitimacy. Kennedy even had a meeting with Kevin Hughes a week before his murder. Now, during the lunch meeting, Hughes acted very nervous, especially at the mention of Chuck Dixon's scam, Others testified that it was common knowledge in the music industry that you had to pay Chuck Dixon and buy an ad in Cashbox magazine before you would appear on the charts. The minimum amount for six to seven weeks on the charts was about $2,500. Um, now we mentioned it could be anywhere from 1200 to 2000 but if you wanted this six to seven weeks, 2500 And this is a lot of money in 1989.
0: Yeah, it is a lot of money, and especially the... Just being on the charts is not automatically, you know, where are you where are you at on the charts? You know, very few people are like, man, you know, that that song that's uh, 103 on the charts is really, you know, really, like, who, who cares? Once you get in top tens and things like that, people notice. So you're paying all this money, and you really don't have any kind of a guarantee that you're going to get any kind of a significant return on investment.
1: Right, unless maybe you're paying more and more money. Well, that's the
0: whole thing. It's like, oh, you keep giving me more? Yeah. And as soon as they either run it out of money or kind of get tired of doing it, um, these people who are perpetuating this scam, they don't care. All they want is your money. They don't care where you're at on the charts. They don't care if you make it or don't make it. They care nothing about you. So it's just all about the money.
1: Well, the bulk of this money lined Chuck Dixon's pockets. I mean, he might have doled out a little bit to the folks he was paying off at Cashbox.
0: Yeah, and it might get spread around a little bit to, you know, some DJs or however they perpetuated their scam. But I'm sure the bulk of it... Here's the thing is once you, you know, who who knows how much even gets forwarded past Chuck. You know, how much he just sticks in his pocket.
1: An artist would pay the money and then have a hard time manufacturing their record. Like, that was another problem they were running into is they would pay all this money, Dixon would ensure you're going to chart... And they would. But then when it came to actually getting a record manufactured, you know, what is that pressed and all? Could they couldn't get it done.
0: So it's like, what's the point? <laughs> exactly. Right.
1: Robert Metzger, another witness, and I'm sorry, earlier I had mentioned that Gene was the one who had gotten immunity, and I, I mixed my guys up. I'm sorry, it was actually Robert Metzger, and I'm just going off of what I remembered uh, from the story. I didn't actually put that uh, here in my notes. Now, Robert Metzger, this other witness that did, I'm sorry, testify under immunity, had seen Chuck Dixon and Kevin Hughes engaging in a heated argument at a radio seminar um, just a couple of weeks before... Um, Hughes was killed. Now, Dixon was trying to give Kevin Hughes money and he was refusing to accept it. So, after this incident, Metzger had a meeting with Dixon and Dan Antonio. He had an artist about to release two more records and was preparing to pay $15,000 to Dixon in order to get those records charted and keep them on the charts for an extended period of time.
0: I just had a great idea. What's that? I wonder if he was running this uh, very same payola scheme in podcasting.
1: (laughs) I just gave him an idea.
0: Uh, Well, you know, the modern day. Well, you know
1: what I have to say? Um, Not to disparage others, but I have heard some podcasts that are like in that top 10 sometimes. And I think, who are you paying? Because this show is awful. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) Uh,
0: Any chart can be uh, manipulated. And and honestly, I was kidding. But the modern day version of that is uh, buying clicks. Yeah, it is. Which, which is a, a, bot, a bot farm or a literal r- warehouse full of uh, people in China or something clicking your website to give you false traffic numbers. And, and that can go not just podcasting but websites and, and social these media.
1: These influencers
0: who are buying yes. followers. Uh, early on we, when we were trying to get some traction, we, we actually saw this. Because uh, at first I thought it was something that could help you for real. And it turns out that's what it was. They were You're just buying clicks. And it's not real but then the algorithms and all that don't know that. So that I mean that's a, that's that's a payola scheme, right? It is. In the modern day.
1: So during this meeting, Metzger expressed to Dixon that he was aware Hughes had dropped some of those smaller pocket radio stations and was planning to drop more. Metzger told Dixon he was not going to hand over this $15,000 unless they had a handle on Kevin Hughes. Oh. Metzger also told Dixon that rumor all over Music Row was that Hughes planned to go to the media and expose this chart-fixing scheme at Cashbox.
0: Wow, this seems to be uh, some pretty good motivation.
1: It would make everyone look bad who was involved. Dixon told Metzger, quote, I'll handle Kevin Hughes, and if I can't handle him, he'll be gone. Okay. When Metzger received those assurances... He went ahead and paid Dixon this fifteen grand, and bought a paid advertisement in Cashbox. In return, that particular artist was the highest charted indie record and was named Cashbox Male Vocalist of the Year.
0: Wow. Yeah. Damn, they're getting the full treatment.
1: Just a few weeks before Hughes' death, Chuck Dixon hired Steve Hess as an assistant chart director. After Hughes was killed, Hess took over the job and was trained by Chuck Dixon. Now, Hess didn't know if Dixon worked at Cashbox, but was told by its owner, George Albert, that Chuck Dixon was in charge. Because at this point, Chuck does not work at Cashbox. Right. At all. But the owner's like, yep, he's in charge, even though he's not on the payroll there.
0: No, but he's still directing revenue into the company's coffers, uh, You know, keeping them kind of relevant. Making them seem like that's the place that you have to be to be seen. Sketchy. Yeah, very.
1: Dixon had control over the reporting of nearly half the 125 stations that were reporting to Cashbox. So he's got control over these stations. He's got the program directors, the DJs in his pocket.
0: So he's man- can manipulate.
1: Yeah, he the can charts. make it happen. Definitely.
0: That was why. He could get you on the charts when he told you he could because if you got 50% in your pocket or around that and then the other, you know, some other stations might play you, you know, you'll get that too, then that's going to guarantee you to, uh, you know, to get on a chart and to get some exposure.
1: Another employee of Cashbox named Gary Bradshaw also verified the scam. He said during this time working at the magazine, Chuck Dixon would threaten a person when he became angry, telling them, you'll meet the same fate as Kevin. Like, if you cross me.
0: Okay. Do you
1: want to end up dead like Kevin?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I, I would just be like, do you want me to call the cops and tell them you just told me that because you're one of the few people that had a motivation to kill Kevin? Well,
1: again, he's like the godfather. I mean, people are like intimidated by him. And he clearly has access to the muscle. So I think people were just very intimidated by this guy's reach. In 2001, a search warrant had been executed at Chuck Dixon's home. Now remember, he died in 2001. But they were able to seize two payment books containing names and dollar amounts.
0: You gotta love that.
1: No records were recovered from the period of October 1988 to 1989, though other books like the lead up to these dates were present and then the books after this date was present. Wow. So, so this is the Kevin Hughes time period that that whole year that book was totally gone.
0: So he has this ongoing record of who he's paid, when, what amount and uh, for years. Yes. And to the degree that you can see when a book's missing. Yes. Yes. Wow, that's very interesting.
1: In 1988, the total amount of payments made was $136,757.09.
0: Now, do you think a lot of times this would be like uh, somebody drives by, literally drives to a radio station, small radio station, gives the DJ a $20 bill and says, make sure this plays tonight once or twice? Or the program director, hey, make sure that you bring these songs in, not these you think it was like a lot of it was small payments and spreading it all the way around to all these stations?
1: Yeah, I would think that's probably the case. Makes more sense, right? So, D'Antonio made five payments to Chuck Dixon totaling $3,499. During his time at Cashbox, Dantonio earned about thirteen thousand dollars a year. But after leaving, he went into business with Chuck Dixon, doing artist develop, or, yeah, artist development. And his ex-wife testified that it was right after he left and started this business with Chuck Dixon, didn't even have any clientele yet. That's when he decided to buy two houses, three cars, a grand piano, and a motorcycle. And wow. so she was like, you know, I knew he was making thirteen grand a year. How is he buying all this and he's got all this cash? He's flashing mad cash. And I knew that he, there's no way that his salary correlated with the amount of spending he was doing.
0: Right. Which he has to be doing something else, which is likely illegal to be getting all this money.
1: Right. And that's exactly what she thought. Well, D'Antonio was convicted of first degree murder as well as assault with intent to commit second degree murder for the shooting of Sammy Sadler. He was given a life sentence, which he served at the Lois DeBerry Special Needs Facility. He died September of 2014. Wow. In 1999, a bluegrass group called the Larry Cordell and Lonesome Standard recorded a song called Murder on Music Row. It was performed at the 1999 CMA Awards, um, the Country Music Awards, as you know, by Alan Jackson and George Strait.
0: A modern-day murder ballad.
1: Not quite. Really? The song protests against the rise of country pop music, taking over the charts, leaving traditional country out to die. Oh. It became widely popular, and the country music legends won a Vocal Event of the Year award for their performance. To this day, the song is considered a staple um, of country music, specifically, you know, maybe like traditional country music style when you think about Alan Jackson, George Strait. That's more traditional country sounds. And so while the song tells the story of traditional country music losing its footing in the industry, the real meaning behind Murder on Music Row translates to something else for a lot of people.
0: I've never heard that song. I'll have to check that out. But um so yeah, that's very that's very interesting.
1: And that has been the story of a real-life murder on Music Row.
0: Man, I got so much stuff to think about now. I'm thinking about the history, uh, the historical uh, significance of Nashville and the music industry and um, how it's developed. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think country music uh, as a genre has fallen victim to every other thing in our life nowadays it's homogenized it's it's being gutted it's soulless it's hollow it has no heart it's all
1: flash it's
0: all flash and numbers in some boardroom where people think this is how they the, and it's all about the bottom line you know back in the day everyone wanted to make money always and that's always been true but sometimes it was like, I'm going to try this because I think it's good and I think it's different, and I think it's what people really want. If it's super successful, great. If not, and I can make just enough to get by, I'm okay with that too, just to get this art out to the world, this entertainment out. But now everything's all about shareholders, and I think that is one of the core problems with our country and, and many parts of the world, not just America, uh, being beholden to the shareholders, you know, that used to, that's not, most companies were privately owned. Well, I think before the IPOs were even uh, uh, offered, every company was privately home, owned, and they didn't have to answer to anyone. And it, Or, you know, the bottom line can't always be making shareholders money, and that's what's ruining everything.
1: Well, no, when you get into any any form of art, you know, whether it's music or acting, painting. Yeah. Um, and the problem with the entertainment industry is we're, we've we we've, um, come to this place, it's, it's su- superficial, right? Right. Everything has to be perfect, polished, attractive. I mean, look at Conway Twitty. God love him. But that loaf of hair, I mean, he was not...
0: An attractive guy.
1: By conventional standards, attractive. Now, when he's singing, I love to lay you down...
0: What's his voice? Your
1: panties might drop and go flying up on stage, right? Oh
0: my God, those panties get around.
1: They do, right? Because he don't even care if you're in your old faded flannel gown.
0: But it's his voice. He wants
1: to lay you down. But he was a fucking talent, right? I mean, back then, it didn't matter what you looked like. As long as you had the chops and you had the talent, you could make it.
0: Well, look at all the, uh, yeah, it's true. And I Carrie? mean, George
1: Jones, people call him the possum.
0: Well, even in. in he that,
1: looks like a fucking possum.
0: The actors, uh, the huge actors from our day Meryl Streep, Pacino, De Niro, they're, none of them are like what you would think of com-
1: conventionally conventional,
0: uh, attractiveness, but they were just that. They, they, it was going off of their talent. And I'm not saying any of those people are unattractive. No, I find saying, them
1: all attractive in you know right certain ways. Definitely
0: right, but we talk about this all the time. Back in the day, it seems like you didn't have to, you don't have this cookie cutter bullshit of, of of what other people who don't even understand the art or entertainment think will make money, and that's the problem. Right, that's the heart of the problem in almost all aspects of our lives now, yeah. including our health care.
1: I mean, rarely <laughs> do you ever see some short overweight, chubby, balding, below average looking guy with a fucking amazing voice with a number 1
0: hit. Well, I was going to say that you do see that now like on people doing t- their own TikToks and things like that, but they're not going uh, and they they have more talent, more singing talent than the super handsome, pretty whatever.
1: And this has been a problem for years. I mean, look at Millie Vanilli lip-syncing because of the you know, they these guys had the image and maybe they didn't have the talent, but the image, I mean, it's just some bullshit. And you're right, Dylan, it's definitely destroyed the music industry as a whole because they want to market this person. It doesn't really have anything to do with talent. And then you get into doing all the weird, like highly produced um, auto tuning and shit like that. And you don't even have to be able to carry a tune in a bucket to make it big
0: no and now with the algorithms and the way you can manipulate the things on the internet it's only getting worse
1: yeah there's some of these people out there that you know you're like well, how did this person ever make it besides the fact that they're cute or whatever anyway i thought this was a fascinating story it's one that i've hoped uh, to get out to our listeners and i'm glad we finally did
0: And if people want other incredible stories like this one, which I really enjoyed, thank you, Heather, where can they get that at?
1: Well, Patreon is an excellent place. We actually just uploaded the first part of an Australian serial killer case that was requested by a patron. You can get a lot of bonus content there. Um, And you can always send us an email if you have a case suggestion or just want to give us some positive feedback. We get some really lovely messages from folks that are listening well, all over the world, and it really brightens our day to hear from you. Mountain Murders Podcast at gmail.com. It's a good way to hit us up.
0: Yeah, and it's also a good way to uh, send us a story if you want to be on an episode of the Shipbird Registry.
1: Oh, <laughs> <Well>, there's that. <laughs>
0: so you send us a story about a person who's just a total piece of shit, and we will uh, leave, cut out names, keep it anonymous, and read it.
1: We've already gotten. A I know we suggestions. do. Suggestions.
0: All right. So thank you. And also check us out on TikTok. Having so much fun over there. Heather's doing some great things. It's fun. It's creative. I'm and, riling them. And she's riling up people. Got them in the comments. Talking about uh-uh. So yeah, just go on over to TikTok and check out Mountain Murders.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in. And we will be back on Wednesday with a midweek episode. Don't forget to check out our second podcast, A Batshit Crazy brand new episode there for the week as well and yeah have a great week guys